back. Hey, I have a little note here. I have a little note here, gang. Oh, hello, crowd. Hello, gang. Uh, it's from a uh, Mexican newspaper. One of our uh, Mexican-type spies has sent me this little note. And he was down in Mexico, and he uh, says, you might be interested in what's happening down in the land below the border there. He sent me a little, uh, it's a what ad under uh, real estate. It said acreage for sale. This is an absolute truthful what ad. It's, a, it's straight, too. It says acreage for sale, adjoining nudist camp. Owner must sell due to domestic problems. That's all there is to it. <laughs> I repeat, due to domestic problems, which of course are rampant. Domestic problems. Domestic problems. I'm just letting that soak in. What is a domestic problem? That is as opposed to the non-domestic problem. Yes, the cold flaw of time closes in. And the mayonnaise of existence drips down over the vast salad bowl of the cosmos. Yes, are you a bit of uh, iceberg lettuce in the salad of life? Or are you a uh, slice of radish? These, uh, it's spring, you realize. And uh, I must say that uh, I look forward every year, and it's, it goes back to the ancient times of the, of the cave crawl to march. March is the turning point. The turning point. How do you picture a year? Do you picture a year as a long slide rule on which all the months are measured off like uh, equal little slides, you know, February, March, April, May, June, July? Do you see a year that way? Do you ever picture it? Do you ever visualize a year? How do you see a year? Or do you see a year as a sort of a, a an oval circle-like it just keeps going round and round. You, you, you first, you, you know, you're the, you're at the first of the year. Then you, you know, you go to January, February, March, and then, then summer is a kind of long straight line. And then winter is this great big curve again, and then all of a sudden you're back again at, at the. Is that the way you see it? Like a, like a oval racetrack? Well, do you see the months when you, when you look at that oval racetrack? Are the months the same length? Now, it seems to me certain months go by almost instantly. You know, the rarest of all months, they rarely hardly have them. Hardly ever have it anymore. They hardly ever have a June. June is a very uh, rare month. You don't see many Junes, isn't that true? But there are constantly Februaries. <laughs> and and, uh, and it, it, it just sort of stretches on and on and on. Even though February is supposed to be the shortest length, you know, shortest month of the year. It seems to go on for eternally, whereas a June, which is a pretty long month supposedly, comes and goes before it even starts. So, uh, time really cannot be measured in that way. You cannot say, "Well, the little little lines equidistant around this uh, this uh, thing here." You know, it doesn't work that way. And uh, and what do you see as the as the turning point of the year? Do you think it's the first of the year, New Year's? That's right. I don't. To me, the turning point of the year is March. 
Because March always is ex somehow really gets me down where I live, man. Because March is like the whole summer is ahead. Not even one day of the summer has been used up. It's all ahead, and it looks you know it's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, all summers as they as they approach, like some great glacier of of, of exceeding beauty with with glints of sun off the green plains of the chiseled sides of this magnificent edifice as it moves towards you. It's totally unexplored, and it has infinite possibilities. And, and as soon as you hit the month of March, winter is behind, even though the snow may be up to your you-know-what. I mean, you may be, uh, you know, wading through crud up to your ears, but that doesn't matter. You know, you know. You can see it. It's coming. And by God, the minute March hits, you can feel your feet picking up the beat. And the next thing you know, it's summertime. And the, the, the time is rolling by. You're sailing through the air like some vast, fantastic bird flapping your wings. And you say to yourself, this summer it's going to be different. Ah, I've got to use every last bit of it. Yes, I'm off and running on the vast summer race. I've got to do it all away. Fantastic, groovy. I've got to go to the beach and swing. I'm going to get a suntan. It won't stop. And I'm never going to miss one single solitary day of this fantastic summer that's coming up. It's March. Hooray! Hooray! Oh, wow. Come on, Al. Let's hear it. Play it out big, big. <laughs> Reset that man. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you, uh, it's it's a uh... now. Some people, I, I'm afraid, don't have that view, and I guess everybody, everybody, it, it, it all depends on what you were oriented to. I think when you were a kid. Yeah, reset that one. That's the one I'm going to use now. Reset that one. Yeah, that uh, it all depends on what you were oriented to as a kid. And, and I think it, it varies from parts of the country to parts of the country. But I don't think the coming of summer means a hell of a lot to a kid living in New York, really. I don't think so. I mean, you know, it's just, just another time of the year, really. And, and I, I suspect this may be true of anybody who lives really in the heart of a really big urban scene. And, uh, he, he, yeah, summer. And, and, and I also think that People tend to be related to the winter. I'm talking about ski cuckoos and ice skating cuckoos. In general, are urban people. Because the whole concept of going away to ski and you know, it's a whole big weekend scene, and, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's equipment-bound. I wonder how many skiers would like skiing if, if, you know, it costs $2 to get these wooden sticks that you buy to you strapped your feet and they didn't have ski sweaters and you know and all that jazz that the, that's that's an important part of it you know ski lodges and all and so to them the coming of winter you see these guys with the with the uh with the with the stickers on the back of their cards it's think snow Ooh, think snow think snow oh boy uh, you, i just can't imagine a guy driving through the plains of kansas who lives in, in, in Kansas with a with a thing on the back of his car that says think snow. Think snow. That's like a that's like having a thing on the back of your car that says think leprosy. You know? <laughs> I mean 
snow is the enemy, the enemy. And boy, I'll tell you, every time March comes on, March excites me. I don't know why it does. Well, I'll tell you, I do know why. You know why it was, why it does? March always was exciting to me because from the time I was a little kid, before I can even remember being a kid, March was the time when you began to play or work out baseball. And to me, baseball, I was a baseball player. You know, the way many kids are skiers, the way many, I love baseball. I love to play it. Did you play it much, Al? I love it. I mean, it, it, playing baseball, just absolutely, I, I can't imagine a sport that's more fun to play. And I've played them all. I've played, I mean, in, in an organized way. i played football and some basketball. i played all of them. But baseball is a fantastic, fun game to play. And I remember in March... We would, there would, it would be cold yet, you know, just like, like, uh, you know, cold, be 30 degrees, but it's March, and it would be puddles around, and uh, just sort of like uh, lemmings, like creatures of total instinct, we would begin to, we would begin to start throwing a ball around out in the backyard, you know, out in the driveway, guys with the, would get out their gloves, and we start drifting down towards the park. And I can re- even remember specifically, now this is going to sound like fiction to you, I can remember the first day of actually hitting a ball. You know, that's a big moment when you start swinging a bat and you start really playing ball instead of just playing catch and, and, and tossing a ball back and forth. And I can remember one specific day, I was about uh, 14 or 15, it was a cold March Saturday. And the wind was blowing, and there were puddles all over. It wasn't really freezing. It was about 40, 45 degrees. And we went out to the park. And this uh, this uh, city park that had a great ball diamond on it. And we, we couldn't play on the the uh, the uh, infield because the infield was all wet. And, and, you know, all winter they hadn't even done anything on it. So we go out in the outfield. I, was, I remember standing back a second base. And, and I... I took this bat. It was the first day out. And and one of the kids, in case you're curious, it was Bolas, was just just lobbing the ball across the plate. You know, we had a plate. He's just lobbing the ball, and I'm hitting these ground balls. And uh, <laughs> other kids are, are fielding ground balls, and I'm just swatting the ball out there out across this, this winter, wet, uh, drippy grass. I just That specific day, I really remember that day. And you know one of the things that any guy that's ever ever been uh, ever been ever played a game like this, especially baseball, there's all kinds of little things they don't talk much about in the sport pages. For example, one of the first things that happens when you go out to play ball and you start to play in the spring, and this happens at the at the spring training camps, is your your hands have to get toughened. You have to start you have to start getting your hands just to hold the bat. And so when you hold when you hold this bat, you know, for a while, you get up there and you swing this damn thing, uh, you hold it. Don't worry about it, man. Who oh, Now, who's taking over? Well, uh, there's three guys just got up and left, and four more have come in. Are you with me, Art? Okay, good. So uh, you'll, you'll stay with me to the end now? You will? Fine, fine. Yeah, okay. Don't worry about that. Whatever. When I just point, just hit one of them. That's all. That's all. Don't worry. Because it's, it's immaterial. So uh, nevertheless... Uh, that reminds me, this is W.O.R., New York. Uh, immaterial, of course. All right, we have the Book Fine Club, and undoubtedly you've heard about 
the book find club, so I'm not going to belabor the point of what it is. They have exceptional books of uh, exceptional literary value. This is a special type of club. And they're offering a reference book for $1 plus postage and handling, but regularly goes for $15 if you join the club now. It's a reference book called Atlantic Brief Lives that covers literary and artistic figures. It's an excellent book. I've seen it. Now, if you'd like to join the Book Find Club and find out about this book for just a buck plus postage, they'll send it off to you. And your only uh, requirement is that you have to buy two books in that year then from the club to remain in the club. Call OX71535 for membership in the Book Find Club. You can call them tonight. And incidentally, if you don't want to call and you want to write, you can send your name and address, don't send money, to Book Find, W-O-R, New York, 10018. But the, <laughs> the, the fact of March is an exciting month to me. Now, I, and, and one of the things that, uh, that you never hear reported in baseball, for example, just as a sport, is, the, is right in the beginning of the very earliest days of going out in the spring and playing ball. Now, you remember that, that what I'm talking about is a real ball playing. I'm not talking about kids that just go out and knock fly balls out. We, that we, we, I was on the high school baseball team, but more than that, uh, we had an organized ball club, and uh, we were in American Legion ball, and it was, it was organized, real serious baseball, including suits and the whole business. So when you go out in the spring uh, to, to begin to play, one of the first things that happens to you is that you get fantastic blisters from holding the bat. Just, just the bat, all of a sudden, it just really gets you. A couple of swings like that, and you tear calluses on your finger. You've ever done that, Art? You know, you get these great tearing calluses. So we used to come out, and, and we would take tape. You take adhesive tape. And you put the adhesive tape around your knuckles like this and, and tape it down. Tape, tape your hands. And then you would put on gloves to, to, to swing the bat because you'd really wreck your hands. But, of course, you couldn't really do that because in a game you can't wear tape and gloves and all that stuff because you, you, you don't even have a good hold of the bat. So with the first couple of days, it's really cold. I remember standing out there back at second base and Bolas is laying those pitches in. See, and I'm just reaching out and tapping him with the bat. Every time the bat would tap... You, every time you'd, you'd hit it, you'd get this fantastic sting. You know, it's too cold. All ball players know that when you're batting in cool weather, oh, there's nothing that stings more than a bat. And it, it, for those of you who don't know what it feels like, most people think baseball is like playing softball. They, they, they you know, they most people play soft pitch softball, and I'm talking about baseball, the real thing. Well, a bat stings, and it, and it gives you a feeling almost like a, a an electric shock. And I have, I have had a sting sometimes when, when I've caught a, a, a pitch close to the handle, you know, right close to your hands. Pitch curves in, you catch it on the hands, and, and uh, the bat, even many times you'll crack a bat doing that. And, of course, the bat, fantastic sting, so much so that for hours afterwards, your hands are numb. You just can't feel anything. I mean, you, just, you just walk around. You know what I mean. Right? You walk around like, oh, you know. It's really, really painful. Well, now, on the other hand, there's another thing about playing baseball that, that the summertime, the springtime has involved. And that is that, that, the, uh, that it, it involves fielding. Now, I played infield. I was a shortstop. And, and when guys hit ground balls, you haven't done any of this all year. You're all, all winter, you see. You haven't played ball, of course. 
and then all of a sudden somebody starts hitting ground balls to you. Well, you got to be very careful, very careful, because for one thing, your 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 eye is not as sharp as it was. You know, you lose your reflexes because you haven't been fielding ground balls. I remember one time in in March, just like this. One time, guy hits a ground ball to me. This was in in practice, spring practice for the, the high school ball team. One of the kind of plays, you know, that you'd make with your back pocket, you know, in the season. This guy swats a ground ball down to me, down to third base in practice. Infield base, just swats it down there. I keep charging in on that ball, see, and I don't know what the hell. Yeah, I, I completely misjudged it. All I know is that I, I, I fielded that ball with the point of my chin. That baby got me. I, I went down for it. You know, I, I was going to scoop it up, see. Well, it didn't take a bad hop, not at all. My hand simply went under it, is what I did. And bam, I got a shot on the jaw, and it knocked me absolutely flat. I just went flat, and, and I, I remember the taste of blood in my mouth, <laughs> that, that terrible taste. And the ball had hit me on the point of the chin, and, and as it hit, it slammed my mouth shut, and I bit my tongue so badly. Did you ever bite your tongue so bad, so badly, that you, 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 you your tongue is swollen and it hurts for weeks afterwards. Well, I bit my tongue so bad that time. I got a shot in the in the in the chin that my my tongue was about the size of a dill pickle. I tell you, you know, bigger like that. And, oh boy, did it hurt! I just the, my upper teeth went through my tongue and split the skin. And and even to this day, uh, I I whenever I'm, I go for a physical or something, the doctor will say, "What happened to your tongue there? There's a scar on there." See. And how to explain to them that you misjudged a ground ball when you were playing third base kind of sounds kind of silly, see? So, but these are the things that happen in, in spring. Uh, another thing that, that uh, is really part of the spring uh, fielding scene is the fact that your hand, your left hand, now I'm a right-handed uh, ball player, which means that you carry your glove, your fielding glove, on your left hand, you see. I throw right-handed. So when you... When you feel ground balls, if you're not careful, you start you start feeling ground balls, and if you feel them right in the pocket, I want to tell you that hurts. You you can you can really bruise your the inside of your hand, the palm and the inside of your knuckle so badly that you will feel that bruise. It's a bone bruise, is what it is. You will feel that bruise for months. And some yeah, I mean it. It, it it's, it's very very sensitive once you get a good really good shot. Now, now that that is what happens in the spring. So you'll see ball players uh, in spring training. What they do is they they can't they can't take a you know wear a big mitten or something, stick it in there in their glove because they're fielding. They want to field. They also want to toughen their hand too. So a ball player will take will take rosin, and he just keeps rubbing rosin into his hand. Or sometimes they'll use alum. See, and they'll they'll just keep rubbing that when they're sitting at the, after dinner or something. They just keep rubbing this. And then when he goes out the field in the spring like this in March, he he sometimes will take, especially if he's an infielder, he'll take cotton and he'll he'll stick it down in there to give a, a slightly extra padding over his knuckles like that. He'll stick a piece of cotton or, or a handkerchief down in there, see, make sure he pads it. And so the <laughs> the excitement of of uh, of, of March, uh, Art just came in. Uh, he didn't get the beginning of this. Uh, uh, Art, do you find March an exciting month? Well, to me, it's the it's the pivotal month. You know, it's the beginning. You know, summer is is is, you know, it's it's like you're going to groovy things. Uh, there are other months 
which are vaguely depressing because you know that each month will get rottener and rottener and rottener as it's coming, see. But March is the reverse. And to me, March is always a, a fantastically exciting month. And uh, I, I think it goes back, a lot of it goes back to what you thought of a month. And I can remember, you know, what, what you thought originally as a kid of, of this month. And uh, this particular month always means to me getting out in the very first earliest days of playing baseball, tossing a ball around, especially late in March when the when it's uh, you know the sun starts coming out and it's windy days and you're out there throwing a baseball around. Now, it it means uh, it means a lot of <laughs> you know it means a lot of things to a lot of people, but it also used to mean another thing to me, March. March always meant, and it still does, as a matter of fact, March always means within a short time the fishing season is beginning. And, uh, and in, in, in Indiana, where I was growing up, uh, the fishing season began something like April 10th. That would be the opening of the season, see. And, and you could just see it. You could see it. Day by day, it would get closer and closer. And, you know, one of the most exciting jobs I ever had as a kid was was a was a job that that I always associate with spring, and and this time of the year March I was associated with March because of of something that happened and I always I often think of that man I you, have you ever worked for a person that you that you once in a while I mean a long time ago when you were a kid you know just a little job you had like at a grocery store or something do you ever think of 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 the guy you worked for uh, at all. Just, just you never do. Well, I, 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 I don't understand that because uh, I do occasionally, and it's not with nostalgia or anything like that. It just, it was just a, a very interesting guy, and uh, I'll never forget how I got this job. It was it was in March, and you know, like most kids, I wanted a job uh, for weekends or you know, to grab a job down at the grocery store or something like that and make a couple of bucks. You know, <laughs> especially because I was involved in amateur radio. And I needed some money, and I needed. I wanted to buy some radio parts and stuff. And uh, out of the blue, one day, just absolutely, totally out of the blue, was a Saturday morning. And there's a knock at the door. My mother first immediately, you know, thought it was a a, a, a peddler, <laughs> toward the door salesman. You know, get under the table quick. Pretend you're not here. And uh, she looks out. There's somebody. That's not a peddler out there. You know, look a very official-looking man, but he was. He was an interesting-looking guy. He looked like Gary Cooper. He was a tall, rangy-looking guy wearing a leather jacket, and he was bronzed. And he had a he had on a, a kind of a slouch hat, and he had this, this this shirt, this white shirt, open at the collar. And he, you know, he really looked looked like Gary Cooper is what he looked like. See, and he's knocking on the door. Well, my mother goes to the door, and I, I'm, you know, I, I didn't know what it was. I just figured it's somebody collecting a bill or something. You know, I'm just walking around. And uh, she opens the door, and the guy says, um, does uh, Gene Shepard live here? And my mother says, well, he's at work. He's, uh, you know, she assumed it was my old man who had the same name. See? She says, well, I, uh, he's at work. Uh, he won't be back until 1 o'clock. He worked half a day Saturday. See? And she says, he's not here. She says, he says, no, I, I don't mean... Uh, I mean, young. She's, yes, he, he's here. You know, it was kind of a strange because people, grown-up types, never came and asked for you. And he says, "May I speak to him?" Said, what the hell? So I'm in the next room. I hear this. You know, and I look out, and I, I never saw the guy in my life. So 
I, I come I come wandering out through the through the uh, dining room, little realizing I'm about to meet one of the interesting moments of my time. And I and I often think about what a fascinating time it was that that particular thing that happened. And I walked up to the door. My mother's sort of looking. She doesn't look a little suspicious. What is kind of a strange thing? I was about 16. I had just actually no, I was younger than that. I was 14. I had just gotten my work permit. In the state of Indiana, you can get a work permit to work like after school when you're 14. So I had just gotten that. So I, I, I uh, said, yes. Uh, uh, what do you want? You know. And he sort of looked at me for a good long look. And I was big for my age. I was, you know, big. I played baseball and football and all that. I was big for my age. And he said, uh, he said, I understand you want a job. I said, yes, I'm looking for a job. He said, well, would you like to go out and, and uh, would you like a job today? And I said, yes, I sure would. He said, well, I'm a surveyor. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm a surveyor, a civil engineer, and uh, I heard that you were looking for a job. Well, I had no idea where he heard this. He heard I was looking for a job. And I said, you heard I was looking for a job? He says, yes. He said, uh, a friend of your father's mentioned that he had mentioned to him that he knew a kid that was looking for a job. And, and uh, I thought I'd drop by and see if you wanted to work with me. I said, gee, work with you? What do you, what do you do? You know, survey. I didn't even know what a surveyor really did, you know. I said, surveyor? He says, yes. He said, uh, I'll pay you a dollar and a half an hour, which was a fantastic amount of money, see. Uh, I mean, I couldn't believe it. So, you know, a dollar and a half an hour. He said, I'll pay you a dollar and a half an hour. And he said, uh, I want to, I'll want you to be working with me as a surveyor's helper. He said, I've got one other kid, but he goes to uh, Purdue. And uh, he's, he's studying to be a surveyor. And he said, you'll work with both of us. And he said, you'll be a surveyor's helper. And he said, do you have every weekend off? And I said, yeah. You know, <laughs> he said, well, I work a lot on Saturdays. And he said, and uh, I'd like to use you if you don't mind working with me on Saturdays. He said, I have a kid that uh, works with me during the week. He said, but that's my problem. He said that he can't work with me on Saturday. He's got something else to do, and I want somebody to work only on Saturdays. He said, would... I said, well, I don't know nothing about surveying. He said, well, I'll teach you. He says, would you like the job? That's all I want to know. I said, yeah. And five minutes later, I'm in the car. My mother is, you know, she's amazed. See? And I'm in this car, and I'll never forget what the car was like. He had this, uh, this Ford, but he had taken the back seat out. And, and I had all the surveyor gear thrown in there. You know, it was all kinds of stuff, a transit and surveyor poles, you know, these big red and white poles and uh, what they call pins. Have you ever seen the surveyor pins? Little red and white pins with a circle on the top with a little ring on the top and the, 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 uh, the chain. You know, what is it, the chain, a surveyor's chain? Well, a chain is not a chain, you know. A chain is, is actually what you would call a long, metal, flexible ruler. Uh, a very accurate, expensive ruler, but it's a, usually a 100-foot ruler, a big, long, beautiful, flexible blue steel. They call that the chain. And uh, all this equipment is all... I've never seen any of it before. It's, it's just it's all new to me. It's all piled up in the back of this car. Well, he, he says, okay, he says, look, he says, you can sit in the middle here between me and Buddy. And he said, well, we're going to go out now. And he said, you just keep your eyes and ears open. And uh, you'll learn real quick. He said, I, uh, you're, you're a pretty bright kid. He said, you'll learn quick. So we drove out into that March day. It was kind of a brisk, 
chilly March day with a watery sun, and we drove all the way out to the outskirts of town. And I didn't know what a, a surveyor did. See, we got out, we're nothing but fields around, you know, a lot of fields and a few gas stations and, the, you know, the, the, the turnpike, and that's about it, a lot of weeds and stuff. And so we drive along, and, and he's talking to Buddy in this very mysterious stuff. They're talking about strange things which I had never heard of before. For example, benchmarks. Now, do you know what is it, a benchmark? And they were talking about plats and benchmarks and one thing. And I, you know, this is all a whole new language. I'm sitting between these two guys, you know, and he's got out a book. Another guy's got out a big map, and they're going through all this stuff. And finally, we arrived at the, at the at just what looked like it just an ordinary point on the road. Just like weeds, see? That's all. Just weeds. Like they pulled off the side of the road. So they get out, and, and the buddy, who was the guy that worked with him, who was a, a football player, by the way, at, at Purdue, uh, he gets out of the car and he takes a shovel, and he's got a uh, he's got this book, and and they have this big map, which they I, I called it a map, see, but they call it a plot, see, it's a plot, and it's this is really a strange looking map, it's got little blue lines on it, but nothing else, just blue lines and numbers and stuff, and the great big fat map, a big big one, see, so he's unfolding and he's looking up numbers and nines, and uh, so he starts pacing along the highway. And it was at that the first moment that I realized that there's signs and symbols all around us, which few of us ever see. And I can't figure out what he's doing. And there it is, down on the on the sidewalk there, right on the right on not on the sidewalk, but on the pavement, is a little cross that has been sort of tapped into the into the concrete. It's just got a little cross there. It's tapped like that, and it's got a number next to it. It's been tapped, a little tiny concrete, and it was a 238.9, something like that. And he is walking off. He's pacing this off. He paces down the highway about 75 feet or maybe 100 feet, and then he abruptly makes a right turn into the weeds, paces another six or seven feet, and then he starts to dig. <laughs> you know, it's very mysterious to me. So he says, come on, let's go. He said, get a shovel, help me here. So I, I grabbed the shovel, and this is my first job now. This, actually, I'm starting to work, see? So I come running over there with a shovel, and there are these spades, you know, the, the kind with a point on it, see? So he says, uh, he says, help me dig here. He says, you dig right around over there. He says, right in this circle here. And he, he just took his spade, and he made a line around it. He says, dig in there. So he just dig carefully. So we start digging. I don't know what we're, we're digging for. And all of a sudden, just like that, he says, oh, here we are. And he goes, ding, ding, ding. And there is a stone. He has uncovered a stone. Just a big concrete-like rock that's on the ground, under the dirt, maybe six or seven inches deep. He uncovers the stone, and the stone, he says, oh, he says, hey, uh, Mill, Mill, I got it over here. It's over here. It's okay now. He says, we can start here. And there, under the, under the earth there, was this stone with a number on it. Just had been chipped in with a chisel or something that said number 422.3, something like that. <laughs> And I, 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 you know, I had never seen anything like this before. You know, kids dig all the time. I'd never seen anything like this before. And it was just like magic. And there it was, it, uh, we would, we'd come like 20 miles out to the weeds out there, and these guys went right to this thing, see? So it's like, like digging up treasure. And, uh, and so I said to him, I said, buddy, what, what, you know, what is this? And he says, it's a benchmark. Well, a benchmark is, is a benchmark, you know? And, and this is the way all property is all over the country is really measured off. So many yards this way, so many degrees, and so many feet, and so on. And the benchmark is like the key thing. Well, 
we start to measure. He takes this big transit now. I didn't even know what it was. It looked like spyglass to me. <laughs> so he sets it up over this thing, and he starts to adjust it. You know, he's got the tripod, and he's got a little plumb hanging down, making it absolutely plumb straight to the earth. And, and uh, they're running back and forth with little spirit levels and stuff. And he's got out a book that's got all kinds of logarithm, logarithm tables, and he's figuring stuff out. And so then we start measuring with this transit. Well, that's when I really started to work. I was a chain man, see? So he says, all right, you, you hold that end, see? And you take it down there, and you unroll it, and then when it hits 50, actually on 50, he said, I want you to take this pin now and put it right by 50, and you move it back and forth over the earth until I tell you to stop. And so I'm real excited, see? So I'm down there with this red and white little pin, see? And I'm moving it back and forth, and he's peering at it through a spyglass. Well, actually, it was a transit. See, I thought it was a spyglass. And, and when it hits the cross lines exactly where he wants it, he says, okay, sink the pin now, a little bit to the left now, easy now, straight in, there, fine, there, perfect. And with that point, he would say, all right, now, let's go. And he picks up the transit, and he comes over. Now he's setting the transit up over this thing, see. Well, the next thing I know, I'm deeply involved in measuring this thing, I, I didn't know where we were going or why we were doing it. See, so we go, we, we measure in from the road now about, oh, maybe a hundred of these. We must have gone 500, 600 feet in from the road now. And we're going through weeds. I'm cutting the weeds and he's working this thing. And, and where we were going, I don't know. And we finally arrive at a point now. And he says, okay, now. He says, now give me the pole. He says, hold the pole up. So it's a big red and white pole. See, so I'm holding it up like that and he's moving it back. And he says, all right, to the left now. Hold it. A little bit to the right now, just a shade, just a hair, hold it there. Okay, sink it there. Oh, so I stick this pole down in the ground. And with that, Buddy grabs the shovel, and he and, and the the uh, the surveyor, who I, who I later got to be a great fan of, he's really something, boy. He truly was Gary Cooper. He'd been everywhere. Do you know that he had been doing surveying, for example, in the Ecuadorian jungles? I mean, these guys are really, I mean, he, these guys really see it all, see? So he comes running down, and we start to dig at that point. Now, listen to what we did. We're digging, see? Digging, digging, digging. We must have dug about three feet in this, made a hole there, at that point where I had set this red and white thing. And we're digging, and suddenly we come upon a stone, a real stone. Now, this is not a concrete bar or anything like that. This is a great big rock, big stone. They start uncovering the top of it. We discovered it. And there, in the stone, you could see a, a cross that was marked. A cross. It was just a square cross that had been hacked into the stone. The stone was old, and it was green, and there was this cross hacked into it, and there was a, there was a number, like six or four, some strange number. And it was... It, it was it was like magic, and I and 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 I asked I asked Mr. Mr. Miller, and see, he was the the surveyor. I said, Mr. Miller, I said, what what is this? He says, well, he says, well, this is a, a an old key benchmark. He said, this this is a this uh, he's probably hasn't been dug up now for maybe 150 years. I said, 150 years? He said, yes. He said, this is on one of the original plats when they first laid out the the lines. The uh, the uh, the bench lines in in Indiana. He said this was laid out back around, oh, he said around 1830 or something before the Civil War, and there it was. We had this, now he was about to measure from there. See, that is a permanent mark that's a hundred years more old, and so 
we started a measurement. I'm really excited by this time. This is fantastic new world. See? I mean, it really was exciting. So we started to measure out from that thing. We measured out all the way down, and we're, we're beginning to lay out lines, and he's putting stakes in the ground. And we were laying out. It was then that I discovered, after talking to them, and they, they never talked much to me about what we were doing, and then it was that we began to, re, you know, I, what are we doing? See, we, we stopped to have something to eat. We went over to this diner, and we're, we're having a hamburger, and he's, he buys me a hamburger, and, and uh, it came up. I said, what, what, what are we, you know, what are we doing all this? What is all this? He says, well, we're laying out a street. He says, we're making a preliminary survey, uh, have a, a contract for the city. We're laying out what will be a main street one day. We're laying out a street. A street? Somehow, you know, that's a fantastic thing to be doing. We're actually making a street. <laughs> I mean, and there's no street out there where we were. It's just out in the, you know, out in the, out in the, what appeared to be just the weeds. And we're laying out the street, and he's putting in these metal pins, and he's marking little things down in books and stuff, and he's making lines. He's drawing a map as we're working, and we're laying out a street. Boy, and, and I'll tell you this. At that moment, I came very close to deciding that my entire career from that day on is going to be as a surveyor, a civil engineer. It's really exciting, man. <laughs> it really is. So we're laying out this street that and and uh, we, we we were working away at this thing and 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 I you could actually see it, you could see it in your mind's eye because we were laying out it was a, I don't recall exactly the about about sixty five feet across something like that wide, and we were actually laying out pins for the preliminary survey of this street. Well, from that day on, of course, I have never, I've never lost this, that I always associate March. The spring early, like late winter, early spring days, with that fantastic excitement that that I would feel every Saturday morning when Millard would come over. Mr. Miller would pick me up every Saturday. Then from that time on, he would pick me up, say about eight o'clock in the morning, and we would go out and we would be doing these very very exciting things. In fact, one one Saturday morning, we went out to this river. And, and uh, we worked, in fact, that later became an all-summer job, that he was doing the preliminary survey for widening the river, how far the river was to come out and uh, where the bank was to be. It, it, you, you never think of things like this as being done. That's exactly what a surveyor or a civil engineer does. And we were doing the preliminary surveys through an area which uh, was nothing but cattails and apparently absolutely wild. And believe it or not, we were digging up benchmarks that had been there for almost 200 years that were in the swamps. And from that time on, I've never, I've never lost my eye for benchmarks and, and, uh, and lines. So when I walk around Manhattan, you walk up and down the streets of Manhattan, I keep seeing them. There'll be, uh, like you walk across 6th Avenue, there'll, there'll be a little metal tack. Looks like just somebody ran over a, a, a tack or something. But actually, it was put there. See, you see a little tack. A little tiny cross on the thing, and that is a really important thing for guys that are surveying, that are going to be, you know, putting in new buildings, that are going to be putting in new phone lines and all that stuff. Everything is crisscrossed with a million invisible lines and these mysterious things. And then Mr. Miller, one day we're sitting in the in the car, scene, he's he's telling me about about the guys that did it. He says, "Well, what do you think that the?" He says, "You know," he says, "You know that school down here." 
And I said, what school? Warren G. Harding? He says, no, no, the, the other one down. He says, what, uh, George Rogers Clark. And I said, yeah. He says, well, what do you think uh, George Rogers Clark, he says, who, what do you think Lewis and Clark were? I said, what? I never associated it. He said, well, they were surveyors. He says, they were making the first big, long bench line across the country. <laughs> and he says, they, he says, a lot of the things that they put in, and then he starts telling me this, you know, it made history all of a sudden come really alive. He says a lot of the benchmarks, the, the stones that they had put in, Rogers and Clark, when they went across the country, still exist and are still being used. That the, that the actual stone that was laid by George Rogers Clark, or uh, Lewis, Lewis and Clark, what is Lewis's first name? We always know George Rogers Clark, but Lewis, nobody talks about his first name. But the, they, they, laid, they laid these stones, and he said, oh, yes, he, said, he says they're still in. And uh, it was then that I discovered the Mason and Dixon line. That was a surveyor's line. And, and these surveyors had done all these great things all around the country. And they, uh, these, these mysterious stones with mysterious numbers just lie below the surface of the earth. And uh, I'm sure that, that wherever you live, wherever it might be, well, I'm sure I know, wherever you might be within, a, within 50 or 60 yards around you, are mysterious signs and symbols that you probably never even see. You know, there they are. Ah, March. Yeah, it's a, you can't blame me for once in a while thinking of Millard. You know, sometimes when I walk down the street and I see a little number, a little mysterious number, I wonder, you know, uh, the people who did this, laid this in, and uh, who worked these mysterious machines, these transits, of course, later on, I became a transit man. That was the great moment of my life when Mr. When, when Millard, Mr. Millard taught me how to use a transit, how to measure the angles, and how to set it up plumb, and how to use the crosshairs, and how to focus it. And after that, you know, late, late the next year, I'd worked for him for a year and a half. We hired another kid. At that time, I was the official buddy. You know, I, had, I knew how to use the log tables. And he'd say, uh, say, he said, uh, I want you to measure. He said, you run that line. He said, I'll be back. I'll check it out when you come. When, when I... <laughs> oh, man. It's coming, friends. It's coming. Summer is on its way. I don't want you to boot this one again. And you've been booting them every year. This time, it's going to be different, right? You're going to grab this one by the horns and eat it all the way down to the tail. This is WOR New York. Now it comes with the news with John Scott. Just reported in a major air battle over North Vietnam. Six U.S. jets pitted against six enemy MiGs. American pilots report downing one MiG. Hanoi said its interceptors got two of the jets. This claim denied by the U.S. command in Saigon. In all, 20 American planes saw action over the north during the day, striking against anti-aircraft defenses in at least a half a dozen points. Governor Rockefeller again is rebuffed Mayor Lindsay on the latter's request for more state aid. 
WOR's John Kelly reports from Albany. In a sharply worded statement, Governor Rockefeller's office today took aim at Mayor Lindsay's $9.9 billion budget for New York City. The administration termed the Lindsay budget totally unrealistic and said that the state would no longer continue to bail out the city. The statement came from the director of the state budget, Richard Dunham. He called the budget totally unrealistic in connection with the state's desperate fiscal situation, which is now known to everyone. In the city's budget, Lindsay has requested an additional $800 million in state aid, which Dunham said would require enormous increases in state taxes by the next year at the very latest. And Dunham warns New York City that it had better start cutting back as the state has had to do to balance its budget. John Kelly, WOR News, at the Capitol in Albany. Another day of non-racing tomorrow at Aqueduct, and no new talks have been scheduled, though the state mediation board is seeking to bring the sides together. The state has a big stake in the shutdown of the Big A. Each day the track is closed, it loses between $300,000 and $350,000 in tax revenue. There's no mention by anyone of a quick settlement of the dispute, but neither is there talk of a long strike. The off-track betting corporation, as it did today, again will take wagers on the races at Bowie tomorrow. Manhattan Representative Mrs. Bella Abzog, whose congressional district is in danger of being eliminated by the state's new reapportionment plan, issued this terse statement tonight. I shall run for re-election regardless. Mrs. Abzog will expand on her statement at a news conference at 12.30 tomorrow to be held at the Manhattan terminal of the Staten Island Ferry. WOR's Lester Smith, covering tomorrow's New Hampshire primary, takes a final look. Because the New Hampshire presidential primary has come alive in these last several days, more than 50% of the state's 380,000 registered voters may turn out to vote tomorrow. And because that many voters...